This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Seeing is not just about the gift of sight. It is about the dawning of a greater comprehension and deeper insight into a subject. Gardening is a profound, holistic experience. This writes Ginny Blom, British-born landscape designer and author of The Thoughtful Gardener, an intelligent approach to garden design. I found her to be thoughtful indeed. We're joined today via Skype by Ginny Blom to hear more about her book and her adventures in gardening and the creative process. Welcome, Ginny. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. So I always like to start with your own beginnings as a gardener. Well, I come from, I think, if you're born in England, it's inherent in your upbringing to a certain extent that you're going to have contact with gardens and nature and um, the pastoral life. And certainly my family, extended family and close family, were great gardeners. And so I was always exposed to gardening when I was little. My mother was a great gardener. And there were just conversations about gardens and spaces. And it was indivisible from architecture for me. And I also grew up in a very beautiful Georgian town, spa town, where gardens had been considered as part of the physical structure of the town. So I was very aware of that um, complicity between architecture and landscape. And when I was very small, very, very small, I was just obsessed with mud and (laughs) playing with mud. And um, a lot of my time was spent with a little bucket, which I had on a string, mixing up soil and analyzing soil. That is a, that's a beautiful thread that is going to come back up, actually, in, in some of your later process points that you, you go over in the book. Mm. Talk a little bit about the path that led you to becoming a garden designer, because it wasn't an ordinary path. Well, it it was a really circuitous route. I I had no, you know, I was was slightly envious of people who were born knowing what they wanted to be. And I've got some interesting forebears who were very good, great artists and and great creators. And, you know, there's quite a lot of family history pressure in a way of these quite um, impressive people. And I remember being, when I was small, just having absolutely no idea what I was for, if you like, yeah. and uh, and my education sort of didn't really help clarify it. And I, I think gradually I began to realise um, I was very interested in people. I'm very interested in country, uh, architecture. How can I put it? it? It was a very slow, swirling movement, and it wasn't really until I was about 36 that it all came together and I changed my career path. But in that period of time, I don't know if you want me to talk about that career path. My my education was unusual. I had a a liberal arts education, which was an experimental kind of post-1960s, 1970s um, education over here, where we were encouraged to explore everything. We had a very informal education structure and had, you know, we painted murals of Jimi Hendrix on the walls of our school and (laughs) we all did, you know, things that you're not supposed to do and thought about things you're not supposed to think about at school and we didn't have uniforms and we called everybody by their Christian names and, you know, there was no formality, which in England at that time was still fairly radical Mm -hmm. because in the 70s, um, the subjects that were taught in school were still very prosaic. You know, you had your sciences, your 
liberal, you know, your literatures and and languages and history and not really much more than that. But we were looking at psychology and all sorts of stuff. So I think that combined with a very unusual home life, you know, my parents are both foreign and we had a lot of access to other cultures and other countries. And my mother's sort of mantra was, will you look at things, look at things, figure things out, ask questions. And I took that wholeheartedly. Um, And then I needed a trade. I left school at 16 and I needed to work. And I signed myself up to become a plumber. And uh, because I thought they always have work. And (laughs) they do. (laughs) They do. Um, But I come from the kind of family where you're not supposed to be a plumber. You're supposed to do something different. So my mother intercepted my my grant papers. My um, do you have those in America? You know, the the cash that you get to go and study um, and rewrote them unbeknownst to me. So when I turned up at college, I had been signed up for drama, which I hadn't. So I had to switch courses, and uh, that got me into drama, which got me into set design, which got me into understanding how people use space. Yeah. And it sort of rolled slowly from there. So that, well, how old was I? 19 then. What's so great, though, as I'm listening to this, Ginny, is that like you put the mud in the bucket together with the person who is maybe vaguely interested in plumbing, and I see yeah. all of your... Um, like a- after reading the book, I can visualize your complete comfort saying, you know what, I'm going to build that. I'm going to make that, that like really solid pragmatism. And then the set design and the psychology, like every one of these threads was clearly the universe giving you the education you needed to become the garden designer you were going to become. Well, truly. And my father was an engineer and I, my background is one of you know, my my English family were all Quakers, so they were all outsiders. You know, they were outside the the church rule. They had they weren't allowed to trade in cities, and they actually built the city of Birmingham here. Yeah. Um, and they built not only their huge engineering um, firms, they also built because it was post um, the Industrial Revolution, you know, the sort of it was when people were beginning to be taken from the land and put into a culture of towns and they had to be taught how to do it. So my forebears, and this is relatively recent history, you know, this is the 1880s, I guess, and mm-hmm. um, perhaps the early 1800s, and they realized, you know, you have to teach people to live together in conurbations, you have to give them the structure to live within. So they weren't just creating things like the light bulb, the envelope, uh, casters for chairs, you know, and and very practical, pragmatic bits of engineering. They were also doing social engineering. And I think if you come from that background, it was evident to me that you can't do one thing in isolation from everything else. So, yes, I was getting a I was getting a strong push, um, both physical and celestial. Yeah. Yeah. That right there informs this ability you have to see layers and to see the higher view over what can be very large projects. And Mm. that's really remarkable. And I think it should give hope to anybody listening that nothing is really wasted in your life. It all comes together if you just keep kind of following the signs or, or the instincts. Most definitely. Most yeah. definitely. And I think the greatest liberation is casting off 
the feeling of being an outsider because mm. you know schools are great and society is very good at telling us all that we should be conformists mm. and I am a thoroughbred non-conformist and I didn't like it when I was younger I really wanted to be liked and popular and fit in with everybody else but you know and not be a bit of a freaky uh, occurrence <laughs> <laughs> but you know if you are you are and I'm really pleased with it now yeah. because there's such freedom in it you know if you look at yeah. the kind of constraint we're living in a more and more constrained world I think you know it's, it's um very unimaginative I, I don't know if it's my personal feeling is that technology rather than liberating is constraining and and makes conformists of everybody and i don't have a lot of truck with it you know i don't want to yeah if you think about the way you look at photographs you know in the old days when they were printed on paper and you could spread 30 photographs out on a tabletop which is how i used to design you know just spread them all out and then shuffle them around and i could look at views simultaneously our brains can do very many things simultaneously Mm -hmm. And it's a very binary world if you're having to flick through them on a screen, you know. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm conflicted about having computers in our in our office. You know, there are 10 of us in there and we need them. But I don't think they make you a great designer yeah. or a great thinker. There is definitely a lot of a lot of wisdom there. This nonconformity, which falls under that lovely old adage of our greatest weaknesses are sometimes our greatest strengths as well. Mm. D- describe that moment because it, it kind of is described as a moment that you went okay I think I'm going to become a garden designer now and well it's you know I think the great they they say in in my school I'm a, I'm a Jungian psychologist and there's this sort of adage of you break down to break through and I think in in my life that's slightly what happened I didn't have a breakdown but I had an absolute um sort of vicing together of a whole lot of things. I ran a charity for people with severe mental health problems with psychosis. I had the the period of time that I lived through in the 90s was the period when there was a a, a hell of a lot of people with HIV and AIDS. Mm. And four of my closest friends, five in fact, were very, very sick. So I had a, a, I was running this charity full of very sick people. I had uh, my four closest friends in four different hospitals. So after work each day, I'd be going around uh, visiting and taking decent food into the hospitals to see my friends and check how they were. And I sort of ended up, it's it's a heavy load, you know. Mm. And I think without really realizing it, um, it was having an effect on me. And I was manifesting at work much more gardening. I was gardening with the guys that I had in the charitable it's a residential charity and we were gardening away and I started I mean I always gardened but I never thought it was a job you know I just thought it was something you do (laughs) and and so the, the gardening started to really kind of ramp up on one hand as an adjunct to this sort of terribleness and then I just suddenly had a moment all four of my friends died within probably four months of each other and all four of my pets which was a massive amount of death Wow. And I think I just I just went away on holiday to the Picosta Europa. I described this in brief in the book, mm-hmm. but this was the true story. And I sat up a mountain, you know, and I just thought this little voice in my head literally said, be a gardener, be a gardener. And I think it it's as simple as that. And, you know, it, it does start, change starts with something quite pivotal and quite 
small as a subject you know the the idea was small and I had no training and I had no clients and I couldn't draw I didn't think I could draw but I did it you did it yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) and you brought you brought all of that perspective and experience and education and it certainly has been a gift so I can tell you Jennifer that fear is a great motivator and having done it having had a really you know I trained for nine years to be a Jungian psychologist that was a good solid chunk of time and I knew what I was doing and I knew where I was going and my I was on very stable ground and I think I realized that I needed to get back to that feeling of stability as fast as I could and I also knew I'm ambitious I didn't want to be doing small back gardens that's what I started doing you have to earn your spurs you know and you have to do the job properly and I'm very I'm very uh, keen on things being done properly so I needed to professionalize myself quite fast. I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. Ginny Blom is the author of The Thoughtful Gardener, an intelligent approach to garden design, a summation of her distinct process of approaching the thinking, designing, building, and then liberating a garden. Today we're speaking with Ginny via Skype. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from Ginny Blom, author of The Thoughtful Gardener, an intelligent approach to garden design. Welcome back. So you've been at this now, Ginny, for 17 years. Um, and yep. you've done some remarkable, remarkable gardens. You've done some small oh, ones, you. but you've done some some big ones, and you're relatively quiet as you're working on them, almost reclusive in terms of talking about it or this technology. Um, You you aren't part of this world of, I'm going to blog about every decision I make. One of the questions I had, there are so many good garden books and there are so many beautiful garden books. And I would definitely rank your book very high on the list of both of those good garden Mm. books and beautiful ones. What, after 17 years, made you say, I think it would be a good idea if I wrote this process down? I would never have done it, Jennifer. Firstly, thank you very much for saying it's a good book. And I appreciate that very much. I mean, you're right. I am, I am reclusive. I am quite reclusive and I'm very quiet and I have a direct relationship to my clients. Most of my clients are also very reclusive and very quiet. And that's how I get the work I get. There's such intimate processes and I get invited into the heart of people's lives, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that one has to be very respectful of. So, and gardens aren't really things, they're not commodities, you know, they're, they're art forms, I think. Yes. And, and I think they develop slowly and carefully. And I'm also, you know, I mean, you can take a picture of a garden that looks amazing one day. I mean, I was terrified of doing the book, but how did I get to do the book? I was asked to do it. Mm. And when the publisher who I've known, Jackie Small, who's an amazing publisher, absolutely amazing publisher, and um, I've known her for the whole of the 17 years that I've been doing this. And she's been trying to get me to write a book for 17 years, and I keep saying no. And she came out this time and said, I want you to write a book. And I said, what do you want me to write a book about? And she looked at me like I'd gone mad <laughs> and said, well, your work, of course. And I, and I just, oh, my God, my God, you know, I can't. My immediate instinct is how can I go and ask everybody if we can photograph? It feels so intrusive mm-hmm. to me because you make a garden 
it's the entity for the people and then you go away and you, you leave them you know you leave them in peace mm-hmm. that's my feeling um so i was very lucky and a lot of my clients wouldn't want to have their gardens shown um and i was extremely lucky and very grateful that people allowed us to go back in and shoot and i have shot things over the years so we had lovely photography mm. but um i don't know then when i sat down you know it was such an open brief and i thought oh lord so i went and um went to france for a month uh i've got a little house over there and sat and wrote for sort of 11 hours a day thinking i've got to try and find the thread of it mm-hmm. and find out what people might want to hear me say because i've no idea <laughs> and then i thought i know i'll just it just hit me i thought i know i'll just write about the process of building a garden as i do it and that'll either be interesting to people or not you know so um, i'm really pleased that people are liking it yeah. it's been really well received thank god yeah it, it and yeah. and for for very good reason and it comes down to that i think for me it came down to that really authentic conversation that you were almost having with yourself it felt like mm. about what steps you took to approach a design and a garden and what were what were at the heart of each one of these steps. And I think this structure starts, the the main headings of the book Mm. start with seeing and then understanding and then harmonizing and then rooting and then liberating. And there are subheads under each of these, but just that overarching structure speaks worlds about how you were approaching this. And that that opening section that is about learning to see, like going right back to what your mother and father were encouraging you to yeah. do and and your process of filling your bucket with mud mm-hmm. and looking at it <laughs> and trying to understand its constituent parts. This yeah. ability to sit still and immerse yourself and look and read the language of the land, that was really moving to me. I'm a high-scoring Myers-Briggs introvert. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I learned, you know, literally that if you take all the organic matter out of mud, you destroy its its characteristics. I love getting into the, the detail of something, something about being conscientious. I care very much about what I do. I care very much about things done well. And I I wanted the book to be generous to other people because I've learned absolutely everything by people's generosity to me. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a tendency these days for people to cling on to their knowledge and uh, not share. And I thought, well, if I, if I care about the quality of work that's being produced increasing or, you know, being heightened, then give everything away and a few people said to me you're giving your all your secrets away you know and I think well if you're lumbered with only having one idea then that's a problem but I'm not you know because every circumstance is different Mm -hmm. yeah because I learned from people like that you know you know Thomas Church's book gardens are for people yes that's such a wonderful book yeah that book that book is it's a philosophical tract you know and if you're given a good philosophy you can move mountains with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a practical tool. There are a lot of books that put themselves out there as how to design a garden, but yeah. they are they are starting about 
three quarters of the way into your process with with where to start. And if you don't start back with where your process is, you miss something really fundamental. And so to, to describe this for listeners a little bit, in the book, Ginny walks through uh, this concept of, first of all, familiarizing yourself with not only the site you're working on, but with its surrounding environment, the towns, the hillsides, the the native plants. Um, some of the stories you shared in this about different experiences in different jobs where you came across old maps. Old maps are are one of your tools for reading uh, a landscape. And in, when you're in a landscape, you have a lot of layered history. Uh, those were the most really insightful steps to walk through with you. I find that works for me wherever I go. I, mean, I did work in the States not long ago, and it's a different landscape. And I must say, I found myself in the area that I was working, which I'm afraid I can't reveal. Um, <laughs> I did think, why on earth did any human beings think that they could live in this place? (laughs) You know, really, you've got some crazy landscapes over there. And it just, I was, I was having a drink one night. So if I don't know a place, I'll always, I'm very unhierarchical, you know, so I'm very hands on and rootsy, really. And um, I just disappeared off into the pub and started talking to people. And I began to talk to all sorts of people. And it did take a few months before people opened up. And then one of the guys that I was working with was Native American, it turned out. We were all talking one night about where everybody came from, sort of ancestrally. And he said, I'm from right here. And I said, well, why the hell did anyone, how the hell did you live here? You know, Mm. (laughs) and he described what the lifestyle was like in this particular climate and this particular landscape absolutely fascinating and in a funny way that did inform the place I was creating and it made me reduce everything really down to a very very small proportion of constructed landscape and I gave maybe 60% of the site back to the wilderness so I think that's one of the the things you know we're all about owning as much as possible either intellectually or, or physically you know and actually ownership is is questionable you still own the land you know my client still owns the land but visually she didn't need to own it with a fence and a a constructed landscape running all the way through it it didn't make any sense or or mean anything really um either for the footprint of the life she lived or or anything you know so it was quite liberating to just say let's 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 give it back and yeah. then we've got sea otters in it and turkeys walking through it and you know <laughs> it's it's not gardening as we know it but it it fitted and it is still gardening you yeah. quote in the book this idea of the difference between wilderness and the wild and no matter how much wild we have in our gardens we are still tending them even on this yeah. larger scale and so it is a construct and that is for for you you stated and and I would agree that is still gardening it's yeah. an expanded view of it and that I find um, really compelling. Well we are profoundly collectively products of, of cultivators and people who husband landscapes and none of there's a whole fantasy about the wild these days I think you know because none of us have got any idea what it is you know mm. we don't live in it you know even, even and, and if we do go to it I can't speak for you 
your country but you know if we go to it it's still managed because it's a national park or a, you know nobody's going to really very few people i would say are really going to head off into the wilderness i have one friend who does it a lot um and she's just crazy you know but she can <laughs> she can handle it you know but not very many people can yeah and that speaks a little to another statement that you made gardening lives on this luxurious fringe of the point at which we no longer need to control the land we're on and so we have the spare time to embellish it and yes. for for listeners to give them a little bit more tangible understanding we've touched on the seeing and understanding the next big headings give us a distillation of the structuring well i am a big structure person and so one i think the first line of structuring is where do you put your boundary you know how much space do you need what are you there for what are you trying to make your garden for and really what are your own physical capabilities what's your wealth level have you got other people helping you do you want to do it yourself there are lots of very pragmatic discussions that you have to have that ties into what you've seen of the landscape and how much you need. Uh, I mean, I live in a very old barn and I've basically got a barnyard in front of me with a wall around it. So I have a square garden and it's more than enough. It's about a third of an acre. And within it, it's structured to have um, relaxed bits, functional bits, uh, decorative bits. I've got my husband is a Latin American percussionist, so we've got a bit which I call Brazil, <laughs> which where we, where we have the vibe of Brazil, so he can pretend he's in Rio every other night. <laughs> uh, you know, And so you end up sort of bringing all these things together and putting them in a big heap and then sorting out what you need. And I build. I'm basically a builder, I think. You know, So uh, the plants come later. But if you don't build the structure of a garden properly... And it doesn't matter how big is it, big or small it is. If you don't structure it, it'll disappoint you. Yeah. It'll really disappoint you. Even if you've only got a tiny um, backyard, you know, with enough place for a little table and chairs, you still need to layer it all up so that you get everything that you possibly can out of it. Mm. And that as the seasons fluctuate, there's a structure that stays stable because people don't like chaos, you know, um, with going back to the subject of the wild, we're actually a bit scared of chaos. So wherever possible, we've structured it. And that's where the comfort comes from. You know, that state of mind that you get into when oh. you're really kind of, I can't, mm -hmm. I don't know how you describe it, how one describes it. The closest I've got is transcendental holism, you know, yeah. where you're really in that kind of, you, you go into another zone, don't yeah. you, when you're gardening. Yes. And And therefore you need to be safe. You need to feel like the structure that you've created around you is going to hold you safely when you go off into that, into the crazy zone of pure gardening. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And um, you had a beautiful <laughs> sentence there of about structure in which you said structure on plan becomes invisible in reality, but it's vital nonetheless. And that is so true and very nicely illustrated by your discussion of and then photographs of your garden, your you know, relatively yeah. small compared to yeah. some of the big jobs you're working on, in which you have divided the space oh, up you. so that you are invited to do different things or be in a different state of mind in each of these little divisions. Well, six people can comfortably have supper in a 10-foot square, 
you know so my garden in london isn't very big at all it's very big for the city but it's not very big and i wanted to be able to make a take advantage of um it's it south it faces south so we get strong sun and then the sun rises and sets in the east and west so i made a little east and west terrace so that you could choose you could choose how much sun or shade you wanted during the course of the day and you could migrate because there's something very nice about migrating through a space mm -hmm. and i like sitting really within the flowers it's amazing how many people design gardens that repel you you know where you can't actually <laughs> get in amongst you can't get in amongst the planting um and and enjoy it you know because there's that whole changing sense of scale yeah if you can get in the plants there's something like you know it's like being a kid again isn't it where you can hide within them yes very nice feelings we then have harmonizing and rooting and liberating harmonizing okay. is really about materials and i've got a three material rule which i love so, i love that rule Ginny. well it's enough you know if you look at your house what's your house made of is it brick is it stone is it wood start with something of the building then think about where you are. In this country, we have immense geological changes as you cross from each county to to the next, you know, and the, and the vernacular style of buildings changes phenomenally based on what you pull out of the earth. And so I like to start with that. So I find if you're in an area which is limestone and you use granite paving, it's it's it screams at me. You know, I can't bear it you see these terrible misunderstandings of materials going on and i prefer to kind of make things complicit because they feel more harmonic that's mm -hmm. where the harmony comes in so if you have an area where there was iron ore or you know anything specific to that location use it because it amplifies the sense of being appropriate and comfortable in the space but three is plenty yeah and so then talk about rooting Rooting is the plants, and I use plants structurally. So when I'm starting a design, I will set up all the structural elements, and then I'll put in the structural plants, and they're very important. In the book, all you see, I think, are, are plants. And my planting styles vary quite a bit. I do very low-maintenance planting, and I'm quite scientific about how I put it together. And I like to give the illusion that the plants are that there are loads of them, loads and loads. But I think I say in the book, I, I tend to make beds really quite narrow flower beds because I think if you can't easily get into a flower bed, it drives you crazy because mm -hmm. you can't control, you know, I either do something where you don't mind it driving you crazy. But what I tend to do is layer um, strips of no more than three feet. So you'll look at, you end up looking at a much deeper bed of planting mm -hmm. and in this country you have a tree canopy a shrub layer and then you work your way down to herbaceous plants ferns grasses and then bulbs I tend to take that cadence through the planting one of the things I also really appreciated was you called out quite a few specific plants throughout the book you talk a little yeah. bit about what benefits they bring and, and what you have come to learn about their growing habits or, you know, benefits or, or challenges. You're very clearly a plant person. Oh, yes. So I don't think you can be a garden designer or a landscape designer or a landscape architect and not have a love of plants. I mean, it, but amazingly, 
it does happen. It does you know, happen. You know, the plants are holding the surface of the earth together. I just learned so much. There was the craze for the new perennial movement over here and everyone, which I suppose you you know all about, mm. and everyone was crazy for all the prairie plants. And I went to a lecture by a great American guy from Wisconsin who's saying about how the prairie plants rooted up to 15 feet, you know, and, and were their whole pattern of life was to do with being burnt off and grazed by very big, very heavy animals over huge distances. And I was thinking, you know, the scale of the landscape they come from is fascinating and therefore to introduce them into a planting matrix is quite a fascinating process. Yeah. The tall grass prairies are phenomenal, oh, and those those, those root profiles of what yeah. the prairie was, you know, and and what existing prairie still is, is yeah. is unbelievable. It makes your heart break when you think about the the yeah. Great Depression and the Dust Bowl because we oh we we tilled yes. up everything that was holding the earth together. But, well, that is such a rapid failure, too, isn't yeah. it? That's the oh. other thing that affects me. Nobody talks about it in the so-called civilized Western world, but then you go to Africa and you see what overgrazing does, you know, and, and you end up with a 60-foot erosion gully during one rains because there's no thin scrape of grass across the surface. Right. You know, I can't be in a horticulturalist without also being an ecologist. I think it it all ties in together, doesn't it, really? It should. It's no different to me whether you've got, literally, whether you've got a 40-foot square plot or uh, millions of acres, you know, I mean, it really is the same, it's the same set of tenets all the way through it. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. A prolific designer, Ginny Blom embraces a wide variety of styles, from formal walled gardens to contemporary installations. In her new book, The Thoughtful Gardener, An Intelligent Approach to Garden Design, she shares insights into the creative process she's developed in more than 250 gardens around the world. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from Ginny Blom, author of The Thoughtful Gardener, an intelligent approach to garden design, out this year from the United Kingdom's Jackie Small Press. Welcome back. Okay, talk about liberating, because I, I loved this, this when it's all over, it can begin. Well, it's, you know, theater, the theater <laughs> taught me so much because you'd start on, you know, the, the 1st of June with a, a new production and then you'd have nothing. Nobody was cast. You didn't have a set. You had the script and then you put the date out of, you know, the, the 1st of July. There are going to be bums on seats watching the performance and a whole lot of stuff has to happen. So that taught me project management. And it also taught me about this sort of incredible intensity that you get into when you're building something. So my process is slightly longer. I mean, our gardens can take anything up to five years to build and complete. But just at the point of completion, when the last plant's in the ground and you've gone around and checked everything's okay, you leave. So, you know, you leave. And if you haven't done your work well, you'll get a phone call a year later saying, what the hell's happened? (laughs) (laughs) You don't want that phone call. I don't want that phone call. I never want that phone call. And so there's a sort of people say, you know, do you stay in touch with your projects? And of course I do. 
But equally, I don't, because at that point, you're handing over to a gardener. So I have this sort of whole segue where I like to get a gardener involved during the structuring element and have them there through the planting so that they're there for a good six months or a year before I go. Yeah. Um, that's when it works well. And then you feel like there's this transition from very from my kind of thinking through to the person who then takes it to the next level of of caring for it and actually gardening you know understanding the balance and really letting it start to sing and that is a real leap of faith gardening is um in a state of perpetual flux yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a dance. This idea that, you know, you as the designer are putting all of this thought and all of this foundation and then you say, Go, be free, live and you're gonna have yeah. a nice life with your your next dance partner or whatever it is. And yeah. I think that differentiation between the design zone and then the living with zone is important just to be aware of. Yes. I mean, the project that I show in the final chapter of Liberating, I was told at the beginning by my client that they would, it's 68,000 acres. And I was told at the beginning there would be no gardener. And I thought, okay, well, that, that then colors the whole premise of what I'm doing here. And then I have to direct the client into what I perceive the best solution is and thankfully we both agreed you know that it's a liberate you're liberating a landscape completely so I reduced grazing pressure we put up miles and miles and miles of deer fence and we introduced a seed bed of native plants I seed swept the hills and I planted loads and loads and loads of baby plants which is the same thing that I did in Africa and then you allow for regeneration so that's gardening on a much longer leash it has its failures in it you know there's an infestation of Sitka spruce in that part of the world which we can't control it needs to be controlled and it isn't then you you have a real leap of faith and you think how is this going to naturalize will it work you know Mm -hmm. and it it, weirdly so far it has your uh, philosophy about conservation which was passed on to readers in the book not through telling us something but through sharing with us how you learned that yourself. So the description Mm. of being with your uncle in France as a child and Mm. not having water for drinking and cooking and that you had to drive the truck and fill the Mm. water at the spring. And you have similar stories about the value of soil or the value of history. I think it's to do with my perception of luxury. You know, I come from a, a good upper middle class family and so the going and getting of water by my uncle was by no means something that had a class attachment to it it was water is a leveler you know water Mm -hmm. is is life and everybody had to do that and he had the luxury of having the truck to be able to go and get it At, at the most basic level we need to share things with each other the things of the earth you know we need to share and i when i went to lesotho in the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa, I was struck by, it's supposed to be one of the poorest countries on earth, and it is. Everywhere you go, people share. They share their produce with you. They'll share food with you. And you're offered, wherever you go, you're offered food or water, something, whatever they can offer you. That is what touches me when I go on these travels, the willingness of people to share. 
if I had to pick one of my favorite aspects of this book, this would be it. And it runs right from the very beginning to the very end. It had to do with human scale and, and human yeah. pacing. And you describe your process. Well, I think we we all move at great speed these days. And in moving at speed, we you, one misses quite a lot of the small stuff that makes life good. Um, and I think certainly lots of, certainly, for example, in older properties, um, I go back to, I always sort of try and start thinking what, what was the vehicle of choice when this place was built? And uh, was it, you know, walking or on horseback or, you know, could it have been an early car or is it, you know, so, I mean, I think these things, even through to arriving somewhere in a Maserati, you know, I mean, it's, it's worth understanding that relationship of physical space to the human and we like to be quite intimate you know that's what i'm saying about you can have supper with six people in a 10-foot space you know is um what do you actually left your own devices you wouldn't sit on a vast empty open terrace in the sun glaring down on you you know we want to be connected and in- enclosed and protected and intimate we eat under a willow tree in, in our garden and we could eat anywhere, but we always end up under the tree. It hangs down to the ground all around us. Mm. Yeah. And, and you describe yeah. walking you yourself, physically walking the sites that you are designing in always, order to... Always, yes, yeah. always. You're pointing out this idea that to develop a pathway or a meandering curve or a stairway with AutoCAD on on your computer, it, it will tell you what is the appropriate rise to run or, you know, it will give you formulas. Oh, it's hopeless. But, it's hopeless. Yeah. I've walked up and down stairs designed in AutoCAD and there's one in a hill village, a hotel in a hill village in, in Mallorca that I go to. And I'm not joking. You can walk up it, but you can't walk down it. So, <laughs> <laughs> and because you're walking down it when you've had supper and a few drinks, you know, it's really uncomfortable. You can't gauge your pace properly. And I I tell you now, they designed it. It was designed by somebody sitting in an office. That goes back to back to my theatre studies. You know, my set design. I couldn't act. I was too shy. So I did the set design, which nobody wanted to do. But I loved it. And we used to tape out on the floor the the length of stride or the movement. You know, so I'm very aware of physical movement in a confined space. Mm. And it's important to do that. You need to walk. You need to, if you're going to go up a hill... You've got to think of everybody that's going to walk up that hill and you need to make it comfortable. If it's not comfortable, it's horrific. And I'm quite medieval like that. can change the speed of steps a lot to functional ones, to ones where you want to walk slowly, where people might be elderly. You know, I've got a, a garden that I've done where we have three routes. One is for kids, one is for people of my age and one is for the very elderly because my clients have very elderly parents and you don't want to exclude people. And you're very pragmatic about it. You talk about the difference between the amount of time you want it to take for you to get to the compost and the amount of time you want to take to enjoy your perennial beds. Articulating that human pace. Your own garden could drive you crazy if you can't get from A to B that you need to get to quickly and easily. You know, my current house, I haven't remade the garden in its entirety yet. And I have to go diagonally across the lawn to get to the compost 
which means that I know that I'm going diagonally over and over again and I'm going to wear a path right across the <laughs> middle of the lawn. <laughs> Drives me nuts. You actually don't want to be encumbered by the lovely garden. So the if you've got one moment, you've got lovely things dripping over a path, you don't want to then destroy them with your wheelbarrow mm -hmm. full of manure. That practicality is very high on my list. It even spilled into how you first make a sketch for what you're doing and this idea mm. of making your first sketch very conversational. Draw, and you know, I'm, I'm not a gifted artist, but well, you resolve a lot of problems if you hand draw because you're thinking constantly. Every time your hand moves, you're thinking of the line that's coming out of the end of your pen. Um, and I draw in ink right from the start. I wow. don't draw in pencil. I draw in ink because I want to make a line that I believe in. And if you sort of see it in ink, it looks quite determined. And then if it's wrong, you, I scra scrape it all out. So my drawings are filthy. You know, they've got <laughs> stuff happening all over them. Um, but equally, then when I talk to my clients, they don't feel alienated from a process. They don't, on the whole, tend to feel... I encourage... I, mean, I choose who I work with because I think we have to get each other. Um, and I say it's a long relationship, so we have to like each other and we have to be able to have robust conversations and not uh, fall apart. And I want them to pick up a pencil and scribble over what I'm scribbling, however inarticulate. You know, I've been at work today and my client is very inarticulate visually, but his points are very good. Mm. And I've been encouraging him over the years. And, you know, you bear in mind that I'm working for CEOs of places and all sorts of people. This is their hobby. This is their pleasure. And I want them to feel immersed in it and part of it. You know, because when I go, it's their garden yeah. and they should be left with a, a happy, a happy feeling. You know, we're building, this might sound a bit crazy, but I think we're building temples. If you're going to move the earth around, you have to be putting something good on it. Yeah. For you, what would be the primary takeaways that you hope readers, not just lookers, but readers, mm. will glean from this book? Well, it's anyone can do this. You know, if you're an enthusiast and interested, then the book is a, a, f a full takeaway. And I think, really, don't be frightened of changing things. It's really not about money. It's about thinking and effort yeah. and serendipity. I mean, when I started my own garden, I couldn't afford anything. So I grew everything from cuttings and then you have great camaraderie because you're sharing things with friends. And gardening is a community of people who think alike, mm -hmm. ultimately, isn't it? Yeah, at its best, yeah. The village I live in, we, we all collectively open our gardens to the public and our gardens are really ordinary gardens. Because I'm so, so reclusive, I've always resisted opening my garden, but my husband made me do it. A <laughs> good man. And, and, and I just thought, you know, oh God, you know, if people come and see that I live in a very ordinary way and I have a compost heap and I've got hose reels and, you know, <laughs> broken glass in the greenhouse, well, fine. So I have one final question, and that has mm -hmm. to do with music. And there are a lot of cultural and artistic and literary references that go straight through the book. As though if you have a notebook somewhere and you, you take notes and you write while you're reading and you continue your own education and interests, the thread mm. of music throughout the book, uh, and maybe it's your husband being, being the percussionist, but you have one description well. of um, this pathway was set to the percussion um, line oh, of, of a Stevie Wonder <laughs> song. And I just found myself laughing. 
Uh, it was so long. The walk was so long. And I thought, how can you get down here? You've got to bounce down it to some sort of music. And I'm not even that big as Stevie Wonder. No, music's been my great. My grandfather was a musicologist and music. I grew up with music and I just wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be a singer. But it, from a tiny child, I wanted to sing. So, um, But you can't sing if you're shy. But I still sing now. I, I imagine you do, given given yeah. how much reference there was to singing or dancing or tunes or chords. Oh, I, I, I thought music. to myself, yeah. Ginny, she sings when she's by herself, I, I think. <laughs> My first husband was a musician, and we were together for 20 years. And then when we split up, I promised myself I would never, ever have another relationship with another musician. And I'm now remarried very happily <laughs> for the last 10 years to another one. <laughs> so. Mark and I are very inquisitive people, so we're just constantly showing each other things, talking about things, reading things, looking at things, you know. <laughs> Is there anything else you would like to share with us, Ginny? I just would love people to get excited about the topic and know how much good it does us yeah. to be connected to the to, to be connected to the earth. It genuinely makes us better people and I think there's an imperative in it because we're so dislocated from the world we live in somehow gardening keeps that link alive that we're animals on a planet thank you so much for being with us today Ginny it's a pleasure thank you very much Ginny Blom is a landscape designer based in the United Kingdom and France. Towards the end of her new book, The Thoughtful Gardener, An Intelligent Approach to Garden Design, out now from Jackie Small Press, she writes, quote, Marcus Aurelius urged us to remember when we arise in the morning to think of what a precious privilege it is to be alive, to breathe, to think, to enjoy, to love and I would add, to garden. The patient love and care that goes into a garden is a gift for life, end quote. And so is a slow, thoughtful reading of this lovely book. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivating Place and value these conversations, take a few minutes and subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts. Already subscribed? Great! Rate and review the program. And, most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about these things we love and which connect us. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.